G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. I suspect a heart-to-heart discussion about some really sometimes difficult topics ahead over this next hour. Things like victimhood and identity politics. You might have heard those expressions. Uh, You'll have a fuller understanding of what all that means by the time we get to the end of our conversation today with our special guest, Bindi Cole Chocker. Bindi was one of the original plaintiffs who prevailed against the journalist Andrew Bolt and the newspaper The Herald Sun in the famous Racial Discrimination Act Section 18C court case that takes us back to 2010. That year, Bindi Kolchaka was listed as one of the top 100 most influential people in Melbourne. Since then, Bindi miraculously converted to Christ and as a result has spoken out publicly including with Andrew Bolt on the Bolt Report, about how much she regrets that decision to pursue him in the courts. From child neglect, drug abuse and even years in prison to success, influence and national celebrity as an artist, Bindi now speaks against victimhood and identity politics and has much to share about the power of forgiveness and grace. Our special privilege over this next hour, Bindi Kolchaka, an artist, curator, writer and speaker, is our guest. Bindi, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honour to be here. Bindi, uh, your story I've mentioned a little earlier Uh, One renowned to be beauty for ashes. Uh, And let's start talking ashes here for a few moments because uh, take us back to some of those early years. Uh, Your childhood was shaped in a pretty difficult sort of a way. Uh, What do you reflect on as you tell your story about the early years in your life? Um, My early life was um, an absolute picture of uh, neglect and uh, abuse in many ways. I was born to a, a mother who was a single mother and I was an only child and uh, so and my mother was um, a heroin addict, a prostitute and a stripper and we lived in St Kilda and that's where I spent the majority of my childhood. Most people will know about St Kilda in Melbourne, it's a very famous area but when I grew up there it was a very rough area. You didn't go there, it was the, uh, the red light district of Melbourne and a very poor place to live. Um, And because of the lifestyle that my mother chose, I was exposed to a lot of stuff that uh, a young girl should just not be exposed to. I have early memories of being at dealers' houses. Uh, My mum would take me to the strip club that she would work at, and I would hang out the back, um, sometimes in the projection room while she was on stage. Um, and so this life that was very extreme was quite normal to me, but ultimately had a, a very detrimental effect on me. Um, my father wasn't in the picture as a young girl. 
Having said all of that, I, I do want to say that I know that my mother, although she kind of went down that path, she did try very hard with me and she always told me she loved me. She personally was never abusive. I guess she was coping with her own problems and um, I lived in the fallout that. You know, we love our parents, our mothers, our fathers, even though when in new light we might be able to reflect on their own personal choices and say those are not the choices uh, that they should have made. I wish they hadn't made those choices, but it doesn't stop us from loving our parents, does it? Absolutely, and you can imagine as as an only child with a single mother, I was devoted to her. It didn't matter what she did. I just loved her so much. We were even born on the same day. We shared a birthday. The relationship that we had was so enmeshed with each other that um, even to this day, that love for her is is so strong. When I was eight years old, uh, my mother was so deep into her addiction that I was removed from her, and I spent the next four years moving around, but mostly with uh, my father's mum, my grandmother, who was um, Aboriginal. And that was probably the most stable time of my life as a young girl. She um, uh, took... I'm very grateful to her for taking me in at that time. I could have ended up in care, I suppose, but she opened her house at a time in life when she probably wasn't expecting to be looking after small children, and she looked after me. Um, and then when I was 13, I moved back in with my mother. At that time, she was on the methadone program and she had completed it. You completed it then. I don't know how it works now, but she had done so. Although she still smoked marijuana on a daily basis and she uh, drank heavily. And at 13 years old, she introduced me to those things. I began to smoke marijuana with her and drink with her. Despite that, she began to write and quickly found some success as a playwright. So she was very creative, very intelligent, and very articulate, and um, found a voice. And she had some of her plays um, produced, and some of her short stories and writings published. And in that time, I watched her turn her life around. Um, and also watched her live out her life as a full-time creative, even though we smoked marijuana together most days and drank heavily. There was a sense of stability of some sort and of going somewhere, I suppose. We inherit a lot of things from our parents, don't we? Uh, The good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, while we talk about the choices our parents made, uh, those uh, innate giftings that they have too also pass on to us and you saw your mother uh, developing as a creative writer and you recognize that there's a creativity within you uh, that isn't suppressed and somehow or other you're going to be looking for opportunities in your own life to see your own creativity emerge so those sorts of things that you catch from your parents we catch their values don't we we catch some of their uh, their aspirations, and we try to make those our own as well. Is that your story too? I think so, and I, I, I often think too that we we like to think that we're not like them. We're, I'm not like my mum, I'm not like my dad, but in reality we are very much like them in so many ways. And I'm grateful for having that opportunity to see her turn her life around. I think that was probably her greatest legacy to me, watching her do that. Um, to a degree. Unfortunately, 
three years after moving in with her when I was 16 years old, she was diagnosed with cancer. And from diagnosis, it was three months until she died. And so I watched her slowly succumb to this terrible disease. And that threw a massive spanner in the works for me. I was already using drugs. Um, Then watching her die in such a painful way, after watching her work so hard to turn her life around, kind of instilled the sense in me that, that life wasn't worth it. What was the point? Even if you tried really hard, you just got kicked back down. And it sent me on a, a really extreme downward spiral um, that uh, lasted for probably the next eight years. Um, and during that time, I my only real interest was uh, pursuing drugs, although not like her. So she had used heroin um, for the majority of her life. I decided I wasn't going to be like her. I was nothing like her. So I was only going to use all these kind of party drugs that were available. And that would be different. And that would be smarter. Um, But, of course, it's not. (laughs) It all ends up, it all leads you to the same place. And, of course, when you are using drugs and you recognise that you are countercultural to what society says is the right thing for you to do and with your upbringing and the background that you brought I imagine this must have been something of a time when this whole idea of uh, of victimhood was catching a hold on you how do you describe the way that you get shaped in certain ways uh, to see yourself as a victim of society well I think in many ways I genuinely was a victim, you know, when she died, I was then on my own. And I, and in, for the best part, from 16 years old, I have been on my own. I had lived through this um, life that had been really traumatic. It left me completely shredded, broken, without any sense of self whatsoever. And maybe therein lies the problem, is that at that time, um, I... I had no idea of who I was. And when you have no idea of who you are, you're looking to find your identity and find a sense of belonging somewhere. And given the life that I've lived, there's a lot of ways in which you can find belonging connection by identifying with other people who also have experienced um trauma, I guess, and it can become a way of life, uh, living your trauma out all the time. It can kind of be what you end up rooting your identity in, and that is not a great place to live in. That is a dangerous place to live in because it means that you uh, are stuck you can't move forward. It disempowers you, for starters. So it kind of, if, if you identify and live as a victim to, to the life that you've experienced, then it kind of disempowers you by saying, I've experienced all these things. None of them were my fault. Therefore, other people have to come and fix me. And also, um, I am not responsible for my own actions and behaviour because look at the life that I've lived. And so it started off, with me trying, I suppose, trying to find connection and community out of my 
victimhood in some way. Um, anyway, I'm probably going off on a tangent. No, 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 it's wonderful. And uh, to be able to hear you reflecting on these things, because out of that victimhood, and as you call it, a disempowerment that you feel, uh, do you get angry at the world? And is anger or is there an inward sort of a rage that drives you then to uh, to try and burst out of the shackles that you feel like society's put on you? Is, there, is it an anger that you talk about when you, when you start to then, when you do actually find your voice uh, and you do burst out of those things, uh, do you do that in an angry way? I think you do. And um, you're always... Well, for me, I can I, I can speak for me. I think for me, I I tried very hard to suppress any type of feelings for a very long time, and I did that through self-medicating with drug use. Um, and so I didn't feel anything for a long time. Every day, I just tried to whatever use whatever it was to not feel. Um, it's only when you remove drugs, I think, that you finally can access the things that you've been suppressing and. Watching my mum die after living the life that she'd lived definitely instilled a sense of anger in me towards the world, towards others, and also this kind of feeling of, um, I just don't care. I don't care about other people. I don't care if I hurt them. I don't care what people think. Um, had no concern for anybody else. And I just lived this life where I completely... Um, was focused on self in every way, all the time. And um, so you then become prepared to fight for your rights and trample on others who want to get in the way. You're bringing people along the road with you, people who identify with you in your pain and your struggle, and they've got similar pain and similar struggle, and you've got then a group of people who are all... Uh, saying the same things, uh, feeling the same way, angry at the world. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Well, of those responses to our Facebook poll question, which talks about identity politics... Does it cause inclusion? Does it cause division? Uh, I can tell you 5% on the inclusion side, 95% say that the idea of identity politics actually causes division. We're talking through some of those things. What causes people to be divisive, if that's a, a word and uh, if that's the way things happen when you get into identity politics? Our special guest is Bindi Kolchoka. We've talked about the neglect and the drug abuse that Bindi went through in her early years. Bindi, let me just bring you to a big, big issue for you in the development of your life, and that is the fact that you went to prison. Take us back to those days. Sure. I um, I, I think I'd just been up to where my mother had died, and I was 16 years old, and I was on my own. And at that time, I was already using drugs and uh, her death left me just shredded and kind of with a, almost a fearless resentment towards the world and towards people and even towards myself. I, I had no care for myself. And so over the next um, uh, eight years, I entered into this downward spiral that included a, a four-year relationship with a guy that was dealing drugs who beat and uh, abused me regularly and when I was about 
21, I decided I needed to get myself out of that relationship. And so I I thought, as all, as, as all kind of young people were doing at that time, I would um, get on a plane and go to London. You could get a working holiday visa, which I, I did. And uh, with $20 in my pocket, went to London. And uh, very shortly after arriving there, I was using drugs. I found um, uh, drugs very easily and began to use. I thought I would get away from my problems. It's a cliche, of course, that I took them with me. Um, because I had been around drug dealers my whole life from when I was a small girl until that time, it wasn't out of the realm of reality for me to uh, live within that world. It had just been the world that I'd been amongst. And so not long after arriving in London, I met a... Um, a dealer there, and I began to sell drugs to him in a nightclub. Um, and that quickly grew. And as it grew, my addiction uh, grew worse too. So within a year of being in London, I was down to 42 kilos. Uh, I, I was, which is very, very thin for me. I was overdosing regularly. I went into, um, I needed to be defibrillated. Uh, numerous times in clubs and uh, because I would uh, lose consciousness and I would regularly go into a drug-induced psychosis because I would stay awake for um, days on end using drugs. And it was at that point that I sensed that if I didn't change what was happening to me, my body would not take a, another overdose and I would die. I knew that I was on death's door. I could feel it. Um, and I tried to get help for myself. I remember standing at, re at the reception of a rehab that I'd found in London, begging them to take me, and they wouldn't take me. And I had no idea what to do. And I couldn't stop what I was doing. I was completely out of control. I would wake up in the mornings and use. And it was at that, that point, in the midst of that dark place where I knew I was going to die, and I couldn't find any help, and I was across the world on my own, that I... For the very first time in my life, I heard God speak to me. And it wasn't a voice that was um, audible. It was a voice that was within me, but it was entirely consuming and it was relentless and repetitive. And it said over and over, call out to my son, call out to my son, call out to my son. And I never get emotional when I talk about what's happened to me in my life, but it's at this point that I always feel emotion rising within me because I'm so moved by the grace of God and how that he would reach out to me um, in that dark place and begin to lift me up out of it when I was clearly so undeserving and so unworthy of someone doing that for me. And so... And so I did. I called out to Jesus. I said, Jesus, help me. And <laughs> it's probably not what you expect when you call out for Jesus to help you. And it's probably another good life lesson, which is if you do call out to Jesus to help you, uh, it may not look <laughs> the way you think it's going to look. But within a week of calling out to Jesus for help, I was arrested and locked up. Arrested and locked up. And you're seeing that as an answer to prayer in the sense of, God, I need help. Uh, you've got to get me out of this circumstance. I'm nearly at the end of my capacity to be able to cope. And that's the way he answers your prayer and you find yourself in jail. Did you meet other Christian people 
in jail? I did. And so from the reason I know that that was an answer to prayer, because from the very first cell that I was locked in, which was a, a police cell at the police station, the moment I entered into this cell, this a, a type of peace that I had never experienced before and could not understand descended upon me. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that the life that I had lived up until that point was over, that it was finished, that God was real, that he was with me, and things were going to change. And I, I um, ended up being locked up. I wasn't released on bail and, and transferred to a prison called uh, Holloway Prison, which was a, a large, old women's prison in North London. And within a month of being in prison, I had given my life over to Jesus. Um, I met uh, volunteers in there through Prison Fellowship, which is a global organisation. I am their fruit. I am Prison Fellowship's fruit. I met women in there who would come and speak to me every week and they would let me cry on their shoulders and they would listen to my story and they would tell me that if I would turn to God that there was love and redemption and a hope and a plan for my life. And within a month of um, of being in there, I, I said the sinner's prayer and I gave my life over to Jesus. I ended up getting sentenced to four years and I ultimately served two years in prison in London. And it was an absolute turning point for me. I did the Alpha course. I began to attend church in prison. Because it was in London, it was uh, a prison that was um, filled with a lot of African people. And so <laughs> the church that I attended was very charismatic, very Pentecostal, and also... Um, I did two years of therapy, uh, rehab. I just made absolute use of that time in there to get the level of support and care that I needed that I'd never, ever experienced before as well, nor had. And so it, it was an absolutely life-changing experience. And in prison, I began to read the Bible. I've since read it through multiple times. I began to pray daily. And when you do that, Bindi, it's as though the identity that you had before and all of those choices that you were able to make before in choosing different identity groups to be able to align with, all of a sudden those things become a little more pale and what becomes clear is that there is a new identity in Christ. Take us into that idea because I know you like to talk about issues around identity. I do. And look, to be honest, it was still quite a number of years uh, before I would wholeheartedly walk with Jesus. Because when I got out of prison, I was deported back to Australia. And so the, that experience that I'd had, it seemed quite surreal in some ways. I didn't quite know what to do with it. I knew that I believed in Jesus. I knew that I could have this identity in him, but I hadn't had that out in the real world. And when I got back here, I struggled to publicly identify as Christian. So I kind of put it to one side in some respects and began to be this this undercover Christian. I was terribly afraid of what people would think about me because all of my life I had mocked Christians. I'd thought of them as weak, as victims, as belonging to a cult, as unintelligent. And I kind of didn't want to become the thing that I had mocked. So I 
put it to one side, I began to um, study photography and the arts and to make a life for myself. And as I did that, because I didn't fully root my identity in Jesus, I started to look for other things to root my identity in. Because of the life I'd lived and the time that I'd spent in prison, I really was longing for a sense of belonging and identity. We will have to come back and continue this conversation after the news. News won't wait for us, but Bindi, as we continue with your story, and it's so complex in some sense, but let's come to this whole issue with Andrew Bolt and the Herald Sun, because at the time uh, there was nine in a group identifying as Aboriginal, and you took Andrew Bolt and the Herald Sun to court uh, over articles that he published and talking about, you know, uh, skin colour here. You might like to take us into how that story began to develop. Sure. Uh, When I got out of prison, I began to study art, and some of the original work that I made was very much rooted in identity and identity politics. I was trying, I was genuinely on a journey to figure out who I was. And so I began with the most obvious things, my racial identity and um, gender identity and all of the things that we might now refer to as intersectionality. Um, And so I made some artworks that were portraits of myself and my family in blackface. And I called them not really Aboriginal. It was about standing out, standing up and saying, I'm Aboriginal. I'm aware that uh, I don't necessarily look like it, but I identify as Aboriginal. And I'd grown up with um, my Aboriginal grandmother at a certain point in time. And so it had been instilled in me to be very proud of this heritage. Well, initially, Andrew Bolt saw those photos and he... Uh, began to write about me because at the time one of the things that he was interested in unpacking was this idea of people identifying as Aboriginal for uh, political and career clout. And so he wrote about me and a number of others and I was then contacted by a law firm to ask if I was interested in pursuing the matter against him legally, which I agreed to do at the time because all I really wanted to do was defend my character. I didn't think that I was being opportunistic. I did feel as if I was genuinely trying to figure myself out. Um, And so I I wanted some recourse around that at the time. So political and career clout, uh, part of the motive there for pursuing Andrew Bolt. And you certainly did capture the imagination, especially of people in Melbourne, but people around Australia too. You captured the imagination and this idea of being a person with a victim identity. Uh, There was a lot of people who were also catching on to that, jumping onto the bandwagon with you and being supportive. No doubt you find yourself in in like a little bubble uh, where everyone is telling you what you want to hear to to buoy you up in, in the way that you feel. Was that the way it was happening? It really was. I I felt like I had um, really bought into... uh, I'm really proud of of having some Aboriginal heritage. That's one thing. Another thing is buying into a whole narrative around uh, being a victim within that community. I now think that that needs to uh, be let go of because it's really holding people and the broader community back but at the time I was very much a part of it and I began to uh, go through this court 
process. And what I didn't really understand at the time was the law that we were using. We were using a particular law called the Racial Discrimination Act. I just wanted to defend my character. But the law that we were using, and I didn't understand at the time, is a law about free speech. It's about limiting speech based on uh, offence and humiliation. Now, this is a really dangerous place to go because who defines what is offence and what is humiliation and what offends and what humiliates? And so I think I've since come to an understanding of the value of free speech, but at the time I didn't have an appreciation of it, nor did I have an appreciation of the particular law that we were using. And now that you do appreciate that, you took a very humble step and having won the court case against Andrew Bolton, the Herald Sun, you decided that you needed to in some way make some level of reparation and you had to humble yourself in what was, I would say, is a magnificent way. Some people will maybe uh, disagree with that. But take us to what led you to actually appear on the Bolt Report with Andrew Bolt. And because of these concerns in your own heart, you had to actually say something publicly. And, and uh, you know, it takes a lot of humility to, to admit that you maybe have made a mistake. Take us into your, that, that whole scenario of what happened at that time. Well... Simultaneously, as I'm going through this court case, the first time since giving my life to Jesus in prison, I began to walk wholeheartedly with him. So I began to really read the Bible again, start praying, I start to attend a church, and I kind of pick up where I left off a few years earlier when I get out of prison. So I'm going through the court case, I start to walk wholeheartedly with Jesus, and as I do that, For the first time in my life, I'm brought to a point of repentance. So when I'm in prison, it was quite different. The first time I met God, he told me how much he loved me. And I really, really needed that. But this time, he told me how much I needed forgiveness. And I really needed that because up until that point, I still lived my life as a victim. I still justified all of my behaviors. So I would say things like, Um, even though I know I've been to prison, but it wasn't my fault. I know I was a drug dealer, but it wasn't my fault. Look at my life. And then I come back to Jesus and he gives me a new revelation of me, not as the victim, but as the wrongdoer. And from that position, I then ask for forgiveness from God. I receive it immediately. And it begins to shape and change the way that I see the world, the way I think about myself and the way I think about everything else and it seems strange that not seeing yourself as a victim as the wrongdoer would be such a good thing but it really is it changes your whole perspective because it starts you start to realize how much of a mess you are and how much you need grace you stop blaming everyone and everything else you start seeing what you've done wrong and you start acknowledging how much you need forgiveness, and then you start seeing everyone else through those eyes so it kind of lifted me out of this victim mentality completely. So I'm going through this change spiritually. I'm going through the court case. The court case takes a number of years and then it's finally called and we won. And I am just beginning to understand then at some point that I may have taken the wrong steps with this because I begin to read more about um, uh, 
well, Christianity for starters, but then I also kind of go through as I'm similar. As I'm, as I'm going through this Christian conversion, which is what I was experiencing, I was going through repentance and being made upright, I'm also beginning to go through a, um, a political conversion. And so I'm, if I was very much positioned as a progressive, which I was, I start to value conservative ideas. And this is a really big change. And out of that, I start to value tradition and family and free speech and democracy and all of these things that I had a disdain for before. And it's all beginning to go against what I've done. This is not to say, and I need to make this very clear, that Andrew Bolt was an angel in all of this. He wasn't. I still may have taken him to court for defamation or could have taken him to court for defamation. I just would never have used these particular laws, the Racial Discrimination Act, which have which had him publicly labelled as a racist. I don't believe he is a racist in any way. And I regret my decision to use these laws because it meant that I played such a big part in establishing a precedent in a law that limits speech based on offence and humiliation. And so now I speak against that because I want to tear down that structure I helped to build. I also want people to stop seeing themselves as victims, even when they justifiably can, and start taking personal responsibility for their lives. Because as an adult, no matter what you've been through, you are responsible for your healing and your behaviours, and no one will come in and change them. And for as long as you are blaming everybody else, you will give away your power to be able to do anything about that yourself. It takes a lot of humility not to demand your rights. And when you've got a Racial Discrimination Act, it creates rights that you can use uh, to defend when you are feeling as though you are oppressed, when you are offended. And it takes a lot of humility to say, I'm having a not only a, a Christian faith conversion, uh, but you're also having a conversion uh, from what a lot of people like to separate from their Christian faith, and that is uh, the way that they look at politics, a conversion from those things that are uh, on the left side to things that are more conservative. I mean, I guess you've probably come in for all sorts of criticism, and there's been all sorts of backlash against you for taking some different positions there. I know that there were galleries that rejected some of your work because you were having a political transformation here. It's not an easy road for you to walk either, making this change. No, it's it's meant that I have been expelled from particular communities. Um, since going on the Andrew Bolt show in 2018, November 2018, up until that point, I was passively in at least eight to ten exhibitions a year. Just the work that I had created going in and out of those shows, that's not including any of the other creative projects that I would have been working on at the time. I went on to Andrew Bolt, uh, the Bolt Report, and at that time I was due to be in one more show for that year. I was immediately pulled out, and I haven't been invited to be in a single exhibition since. Um, And so there definitely has been a cost to coming out and speaking about these things. It shows a complete bias within the art world in terms of... um, ideologies and political messages Um, but I do want to say that I am no victim to the art world either I I stand by what I've done by what I've said and I would say it again and again and again if I needed to 
Lots of people, when they think about policies on the progressive side of politics, uh, there are things that capture imaginations there. And to make a transformation from those progressive politics to a conservative side uh, leaves you a little bit open here. But I wonder if you can reflect on the sorts of people and the sorts of issues that the progressive side of politics is picking up on, because it does appear from where I sit that progressivism is really wanting to adopt every minority, every offended group, everyone who wants to involve in identity politics uh, to make those there, uh, want to be championing those causes. And so no doubt there'd be people who are holding to some of those uh, issues uh, who are suffering the same sort of pain that we talked about earlier that, that you had experienced. What are your thoughts for 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 the uh, for the sort of uh, the people who are often going ahead and uh, and championing those progressive causes. Well, my thought is that that's who I used to be as well, but then I woke up, and I now understand that progressivism uses minority groups to further its agenda by positioning all minority groups as victims and oppressed. And so when your position is a victim and as the oppressed, then it disempowers you completely. You, you, you can end up believing that you don't have the capacity to change life or yourself for yourself, that somebody else has to come in and do that for you. It's actually another form of paternalism. It's like you're in the position you're in because people came in and did this to your life. But now you're the victim to it and people have to come in and do something else to your life to get you out of it. That's completely wrong. And my other point would be that we are all the perpetrator and the victim. All of us. We are all the wretch. We are all both. And if we constantly look at the world through these eyes of these people are the victims and these people are the oppressors, all we do constantly is create division. We need to all start from the position, and I think we've lost this in today's day and age, of being the sinner and the wretch. And from that position, we are so free, one, to take responsibility for our lives, to receive the forgiveness that's offered to us and begin to offer forgiveness to everybody else. Everyone wants to have a voice, though. Bindi, everyone wants to have a voice. And if you are a part of one of those minorities that feels as though you are uh, disempowered, you don't have a voice, and you're looking for someone who will take up your cause, I wonder whether you've got any thoughts about, you know, you mentioned the idea that uh, that a lot of uh, minorities are being used by progressivism, about what the outcome may be down the track, even though you've got someone who wants to take up your cause and be your voice, uh, what the final outcome of that might be? I don't, well, I mean, I, I, I just think you don't get to go anywhere. You remain stuck. You're just giving your power to these people that uh, want to keep you in that victim position, not necessarily empower you to make choices that will get you out of it. Um yeah. Okay. Let's... And I think we sorry, I, just to go on, I think we see that within the Aboriginal community. I think we've seen for many, many years 
money and legislation being thrown at the Aboriginal community, but it doesn't seem to be getting any better. It seems to just be being compounded year after year after year because within that community needs to come the voice and the response and the healing and the answer, not from outside. So if you're somebody who wants to have a voice, have the voice yourself. Don't look to others to necessarily cling on to to, um, to give it to you, but think through things, look at both sides of politics and ideas and work it out for yourself. Let me ask you about issues like forgiveness and being gracious because for a lot of people, they'll think that those things are a sign of weakness. But from what we can hear in the conversation with you today, you're saying this is where your real strength will be found. Take us into some of these ideas about what we ought to be understanding about forgiveness and when there are people who are being oppressed, how do you approach that uh, in such a way that will actually give you real value and not detract from your value? I think forgiveness is the greatest thing that we've ever been given and it's clearly important in the Christian walk. Everything that we do and who we are is based on forgiveness. Jesus came to give us forgiveness the last one of the last things he did on the cross was offer forgiveness too, and that would have freed him. And so it's that particular transaction that I'm talking about. If you remain uh, full of unforgiveness, what that does is uh, puts you in a position where you're blaming someone else and wishing them hurt or bitterness or pain while drinking the poison yourself. Forgiveness, on the other hand, if you choose to, to forgive somebody, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to uh, forget or that there shouldn't be justice if, if that is required in a particular situation, but it just means that you're going to make a decision not to be beholden to whatever event has happened to you or whatever person has hurt you anymore. You're going to release them. You're going to be set free from being under their influence and their power. And it gives you such freedom in your life to then be the effective person that you want to be out in the world because you're not operating out of your bitterness and your hurt and your trauma anymore. In terms of going to people and into communities and saying, look, (laughs) forgiveness is the way to go, it's a slow and difficult process because some people will be on board and I've experienced it many times where I talk to a lot of people about forgiveness and many people will say, Many highly, deeply traumatized people will say, yes, yes, that's what I want. I want to forgive people. Teach me how to do that. And some will say, I can never forgive. And that's always going to be the response and that and everything in between. But if we can at least get people thinking about it and talking about it, it's a really good start. No doubt verbalizing forgiveness may not be reflective of how you feel more deeply in your heart, but it is the starting point, isn't it? The idea of saying, I forgive you, even though, the, as you say, it's a painful process to go through to really, truly forgive. And we have run out of time, but just to reflect for just a moment that the person in all history who might actually claim victimhood status at the highest level would himself be Jesus Christ who was crucified on the cross and he was completely innocent and yet he is the one who has taught us that forgiveness is the way to freedom to be released from 
these real challenges that happen within the human heart. And uh, he's told us the way to freedom. And, and of course, part of that is to be able to forgive. Bindi Cole-Chocker has been our guest. And there's been so much wonderful uh, insight that we've been hearing. We didn't get a lot of chance to hear about Bindi's artwork, but I want to point listeners to to Bindi's website, bindicolechocker.com, and uh, you'll be able to connect with some of her artwork, uh, artwork that asks questions, artwork that asks difficult questions, and uh, you might be impressed to check out those uh, uh, artworks that uh, Bindi has, and some those, of course, for sale. BindiColeChocker.com. Bindi's also going to be one of the speakers and telling her story along the lines, I guess, of what the things that we've been sharing today at the Church and State Summit that's coming up in just over a week's time. In Melbourne, it'll be on on the 26th of February. In Sydney, on the 27th of February. In Brisbane, on the 28th and 29th of February. And uh, there are still places at the Church and State Summits. You can register at churchandstate.com.au. Bindi, a big long list of great speakers who will be speaking at that summit. And uh, you'll be one of them. And I guess you'll get to rub shoulders with some of those others. But uh, no doubt you're looking forward to the summits. I really am. I'm very excited to be there, but also to hear the other speakers, especially Dr. Michael Brown. Yes, Dr. Michael Brown, an outstanding communicator, and uh, was our guest last week on this program. And uh, look forward to, uh, uh, if I get a chance to catch up with you, I'll look forward to shaking your hand to Bindi Cole-Chocker at bindicolechocker.com. Bindi, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. It was really an honour and a pleasure. And, and yeah, thank you for giving me this time. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.